Welcome to the Middleway Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Goodman. This podcast is about seeing the world through the lens of interconnectedness. It's about recognizing our common humanity and discovering pragmatic solutions to improve well being from the individual to the collective. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome back to the Middle Way. The topic of today's podcast is one that I know is near and dear to all of our hearts and top of all of our minds, and that is the war in Russia and Ukraine. My guest today to discuss this conflict and U.S. foreign policy more broadly is none other than Stephen Kinzer. Stephen is an award-winning foreign correspondent who has covered more than 50 countries on five continents. His articles and books have led the Washington Post to place him among the best in popular foreign policy and storytelling. Kinzer spent more than 20 years working for the New York Times, most of it as a foreign correspondent. His foreign postings have placed him at the center of historic events and at times in the line of fire. He's authored several books, including Overthrow and All the Shah's Men, amongst others. And he's currently a senior fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. I came across Stephen's work after reading an article that he wrote about the war in Ukraine, where he expressed concern and dismay over how the press has essentially avoided asking tough questions or offering alternative viewpoints about the war, and that there's been a surprising coalescence or unanimity around support for U.S. supporting this war. Stephen's been covering foreign policy for decades and has been sounding the alarm on the costs of war, which he has studied in depth, and sounding the alarm on the motivations behind them, but also the narratives that we tell about our interventions abroad. In this episode, we talk about the narrative that is being portrayed and how this conflict is really beyond the narrative of good versus evil. We talk about the complex historical relationship between US, between the US and both Russia and Ukraine, and how some of this context is lost in the current narrative. We talk about the corrupt incentives for war, the possibility that the US does not want to diffuse tensions, and the backdrop of China and Taiwan in this current context. You'll probably come to see very quickly that Stephen and indeed myself have great concerns about the US's role in this war and the war more broadly. And that's probably underselling it for me. I am staunchly against this war. At the very least, what Stephen argues for and what I also support is the capacity for us to have a more nuanced conversation about this conflict, which, as he points out, the press has largely failed to do, at least in certain sections. 
And regardless of where you might stand or your perspective on this conflict, really the one of the fundamental motivations of this podcast is for us to look at things from alternative perspectives. So I just encourage you, if you'd still like to listen, to listen with an open mind and an open heart. At the end of the day, my motivation always circles back to how do we decrease as much suffering as possible? That has informed my position on this, which I won't go into in this episode, but I will say that I have done a previous episode on that very topic, which I'll link to in the show notes. At the end of the day, it comes down to pragmatism. What exactly do we have to do to decrease suffering? What exactly works? Pragmatism over ideology. The reality is that there have been hundreds of thousands of casualties on both sides of this conflict. Over 100,000 casualties is estimated on the Ukrainian side and on the Russian side. And I continue to reflect on how many people, how many families are suffering who lost a father or a husband. And again, regardless of whether one is in support of this war or against it, we should continue to keep in mind whether or not we are currently serving the Ukrainian people. Okay, this is a very deep and sensitive topic. I appreciate you listening. If you have any thoughts or feedback, please get in touch. And I hope you enjoy this episode. I have the great privilege of being here today with Stephen Kinzer. Stephen, thank you so much for joining the Metaway podcast. Thank you. I'm looking forward. So I came across your work through an article that you wrote called Putin and Zelensky, Sinners and Saints Who Fit Our Historic Narrative. And one of the things that you write in this article, I'm going to quote you here, is that the press should not be on anybody's team. Our job is to challenge the official narratives, not amplify them. That is the difference between journalism and public relations. And I think whether we're conscious of it or not, there is a certain narrative that much of us are seeing the world through, um, maybe a lot of public relations happening. And so before we get into kind of dissecting that narrative, I'm wondering if you could just set the stage by explaining what that narrative is from your perspective, just as a starting point for us. You're quite right that in the United States, most mainstream opinion, and certainly the overwhelming opinion in Washington, uh, has been uh, shaped by a particular narrative about what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, it's, it's a very simple-minded one, and that's why it's so appealing. Uh, you know, Americans are not into nuance, as George W. Bush uh, famously put it, and we don't have a long historical memory. So we love to grab onto the good versus evil uh, paradigm. The narrative we get is that um, a 
maniacally expansionist uh, dictator in Moscow is trying to seize the territory of uh, a neighboring country as a jumping off point to threatening all of Europe, and that the country that's victimized has never done anything against its Russian minority, and that actually it's a lovely country that we should not only be emotionally connected to, but the word we should also arm uh, to the teeth. So uh, the U.S. Congress, immediately after the Russian invasion, voted a package of $40 billion to uh, aid Ukraine. Since then, Congress has appropriated more than $100 billion in aid to Ukraine. Tens of billions of it is in our most advanced weaponry. So we're pouring sophisticated weaponry into uh a raging war zone, which only is going to intensify hostilities. And this policy was unanimously uh, approved by every single Democrat in Congress. It was really remarkable to me, even one who's watched Congress a long time. Every single Democratic member of Congress in both the House and the Senate voted for these billions. And the Republicans also voted overwhelmingly for it. But there was at least a minority caucus that was against it. In any case, this is the narrative that we're hearing. Now, I understand why many congressmen jump onto this bandwagon. Uh, they love a simple narrative. Uh, they see a, a chance to wound Russia, which is, I think, something that fascinates them. Uh, other the, another country, Ukraine, will supply the dead bodies. All we have to do is supply the money and the weapons, so it's very appealing. And in addition to that, the power of the arms industry in Washington is so strong. Uh, huge amounts of money are not only poured into political campaigns uh, for members of Congress, who then respond to the needs of the military industries, but whenever a big defense contract is approved by Congress, uh, the first thing that the defense contractor does is split the contract up into pieces and put each piece in the district of some important member of Congress. That way, if the congressman votes to end some needless or wasteful program, he's throwing hundreds or maybe thousands of people in his own district out of work. So in this way, the arms industry also contributes to the unanimity or near unanimity of the narrative in Washington. So I understand that. I get it. I, I understand why politicians want to jump on this bandwagon. I deplore it. I'd like to think that there were at least a few Democrats who might dissent, but I understand why it's happening. But what I don't like is what I see in the press. So I was a New York Times reporter for more than 20 years. I spent my career in the press. The press is not supposed to be a megaphone for power. We are there to critique narratives, but that's not what's happening. Right now, the press is the number one loudspeaker amplifying the message out of Washington. Uh, it's almost impossible in mainstream media to see any dissent from this narrative. Even the uh, co coverage of the war front is only coming from one side. We hear a lot about war crimes committed by Russia, and much of that might be true, but Am I supposed to believe there's no war crimes committed on the other side? We're not getting a full view of what's happening there. That's reflected on op-ed pages, and it's even reflected in news coverage. So what I really deplore is the way that the press 
has willingly uh, turned itself into a megaphone for power rather than fulfilling its traditional putative role of being the outsider, the critic, the one that grabs onto the unpopular possibilities and provides people with a range of views, uh, not force the narrative down into the paradigms that the US government wants it to remain in. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, Stephen, you pointed to the fact that we have already spent billions of dollars, almost in, in some ways unprecedented amounts of money, um, supporting the Ukrainians. And the idea behind this that I maybe Congress or most people in our country have is that, well, if we don't do that, then as you suggested, then Russia might just continue expanding and Putin will continue his expansion westward. Why is that? Why is that narrative potentially not true? Or what would you say in response to that? Because I think that's the feeling that many people have. Like, if we don't act, then we're all screwed, basically. I mean, is is, is that is that true? First of all, there is a, a very strong counter narrative. But let me just, before I get into that, say that question should be asked in the press. Why are why are these issues not debated? Why is not one narrative placed next to another narrative so that readers can make their own judgments? So here's a little bit of a counter narrative. In 2014, there was a coup in Ukraine that overthrew the elected government. The United States was involved in that coup. The Assistant Secretary of State was in the crowd that actually overthrew the government, handing out chocolate chip cookies and encouraging Ukrainians to rise up against their elected government. The reason for this was that the elected government was sympathetic to Russia. Now, Ukraine is a country that's largely divided politically and ethnically. The regions that are near Russia are populated by Russian people. They feel much closer to Russia. The people in the Western part that are over near Poland are more interested in facing Europe. So that division has really uh, defined modern politics in Ukraine. Now, I have to spool the cat, uh, at the CIA they say, walk the cat back, if you wanna look at history. I wanna walk the cat back and remind you that all during the 1950s, the CIA was dropping paratroopers into Ukraine to fight against the Russian dominated government. We spent decades trying to use Ukraine as a way to undermine the Soviet Union. And we've never lost interest in Ukraine. Uh, it, we see it as a way to batter Russia. So in 2014, the government was replaced with a new regime that was in favor of alliance with the West. This led to the idea that Ukraine would ultimately become a Western military ally that is a member of NATO. It means that the United States will have troops and nuclear weapons in a country that's right on the border of Russia. Now, international relations scholars have come up with a concept called uh, strategic depth. All countries want strategic depth. What does it mean? It means you don't want your enemy right on your border. You want to have your enemies a little bit away from you. This is the reason why in the 1840s, we seized Texas from Mexico. We didn't want Mexico just 100 miles from New Orleans, which was then our most important city. 
we wanted to push them further away. You never want your enemy too close. So the Russians and Putin had to realize we're about to have our greatest enemy in the world right on our border with nuclear weapons and unlimited amounts of troops. We can't accept that. So they tried and tried to reach an agreement under which Ukraine could be a bridge between East and West, not a, a bone of contention between them. It should be a neutral country. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a, a real precedent for this. After World War II, nobody knew what to do with Austria. It lasted for years, almost a decade after the end of the war. And finally, there was an, something called the, the Austrian State Treaty. And what that said is there can be no foreign armies in Austria, and Austria will never join any military alliance and will be permanently neutral. And this will be enshrined in the Constitution. Something like that would defuse uh, the problem in Ukraine. However, we don't want to defuse it. The Americans are, have re resolutely and explicitly said we're against any peace negotiations. Uh, whenever there's a ripple from Beijing or anywhere else that there's somebody trying to uh, negotiate a settlement, uh, we protest. We see this as such a delightful opportunity to stick a harpoon into the belly of the Russian whale. And we don't even have to send our own kids to die. Meanwhile, we are running through an entire generation of Ukrainian men. There's over 100,000 casualties already, only on the Ukrainian side. So the longer this war drags on, the more devastated Ukraine will be. And it really doesn't serve American interests. Ukraine is not a country we want to bring into the Western alliance. It's repeatedly made number one on the list of the world's most corrupt countries. And uh, it's, it's just not a prize worth fighting over. Another thing to bear in mind, as international relations theorists would put it, is that for Russia, Ukraine is really, really important. It's a matter of almost of life and death. For the United States, Ukraine really doesn't mean much. The fact of the matter is, Nothing's going to change in the U.S. or in U.S. power if Ukraine becomes a neutral country. But we're looking for victory. We are not looking for a resolution of this problem anytime soon. And I understand the, the narrative that's out there. And I don't mind people saying that Putin is the new Hitler and that once he gets Ukraine, the next thing you know, he's going to be in Holland and crossing the English Channel. I, I don't mind those kind of views being uh, presented. But I just like them to be in a spectrum where you have a variety of views and people can apply their own standards and their own intelligence to making their own decisions, rather than being told that it's simply a good guy versus bad guy thing. It's not like a Western movie where one guy has a black hat and the other guy has a white hat. The world doesn't work like that. And the fact that most people in Washington refuse to realize that is why we're sending what amounts to already $750 for every single American citizen to this country that up until a year and a half ago, very few Americans had ever heard of. Hmm. Well, I really appreciate and wholeheartedly agree with the sentiment that we really just need to have a conversation. Americans should have the opportunity to view multiple perspectives. And I think what you're pointing to um, here is that there is a history um, there. Um, of course, I, I, I think it is fair in ways to depict Putin as 
evil and as a, you know, imperialist and, and all these things, but there is a history. And as you pointed to, um, the f- idea that this is completely unprovoked doesn't necessarily add up given the context of the whole situation. So there is more there. And that, that there is a possibility that if Ukraine just was neutral, that this could all stop potentially, right? I mean, that just, I, I can't, it's so hard to come to terms with that. It's so heartbreaking to see how many lives are being lost. And why do you think that is, Stephen? Like what you mentioned that the US doesn't maybe want this to end. Um, what are the incentives to keep this going? Why can't we come to some sort of negotiation or you, you know, supporting identifying Ukraine as as neutral and not a NATO country? That could potentially end the whole thing, maybe. What's the incentive here? Keep it going. You're absolutely right that if Ukraine would simply promise that it will remain neutral and will never join any military alliance. That would end the whole problem. Uh, in fact, we had a, a project like that, the so-called Minsk II agreement was going to give exactly that uh, settlement. And then there would be uh, autonomy for some of the provinces that are mainly Russian, that border on Russia. That agreement is out there. But the United States doesn't, doesn't accept that. Uh, so the official narrative is we don't accept it because the whole future of human freedom is at stake in Ukraine. If we don't fight uh, the new Hitler right now, the next thing you know, uh, he'll just be encouraged and try to grab other countries. He has never indicated any interest in doing that. And besides, the next country over, you're in NATO. You're fighting the United States of America. I mean, Russia is really having a hard time conquering a little bit of eastern Ukraine. I don't think we need to be too afraid that they're going to roll over Poland and Germany and France anytime soon. And they have no interest in doing that. I mean, that's really kind of a ludicrous idea. Um, so what is the motivation? Uh, I think there's a political and, and an always an economic uh, motivation. The political motivation, I think, the, the larger geopolitical concept of why this is such a great war is that it bleeds the country that we now feel we can finally destroy after demonizing for so many generations. Now, Russia has always been something very large in the American imagination. Even 150 years ago, I found a cartoon from the 1870s where you see the big, ugly Russian beast emerging from Siberia, confronting the handsome Uncle Sam trying to defend freedom in the Pacific. So. Uh, We're psychologically prepared to be anti-Russian. Then, of course, there was the entire Cold War period when we associated Russia with communism. And uh, as uh, Solzhenitsyn so acutely pointed out, astutely pointed out when he uh, was living in the United States, he said, the strangest thing I see here is that all the Russian people were the number one victims of communism in the history of the world. People in the United States think the Russian people were communists. They're associating us with that regime. So we had all those generations of thinking of the Russians as our enemy. Um, Now, in the new world, we've sanctioned Russia and sanctioned Iran and sanctioned China so much that all those countries are kind of coming together in a balance against us. And we now suddenly find some country sitting there, Ukraine, that's willing to make war, that's willing to uh, fight, that's willing to confront Russia. So Russia is attempting to control a a band of provinces in the part of Ukraine that's along the Russian border. Uh, If 
uh, if that manages, to, if that succeeds in happening, uh, then I think Russia has what it wants. But we don't have what we want. This war for us has nothing to do with Ukraine. Let me tell you, I, as, as a young foreign correspondent, I covered the war between the Sandinistas and the Contras in Nicaragua. And let me tell you, that war had nothing to do with Nicaragua. It, it seemed a little bit on the surface to be about Nicaragua, but it wasn't. It was all about the Russians and the Cubans pouring guns onto one side and the Americans pouring guns onto the other and the Nicaraguans only contributing the dead people, all the kids on both sides who joined uh, one side or the other. So this war is not about Ukraine as far as the United States is concerned. It's only about Russia. So we have the perfect situation for us where this country is willing to send its entire generation out to die. And all we have to do is send them billions of dollars in, in weaponry. So that's the political motivation. There's such a, a gleam in the eye when you think of being able to inflict a decisive blow against one of your perceived great enemies. But I also think that, to go back to something I said earlier, you can't discount the influence of the arms industry. They are rolling uh, right now. And, and some of the speeches by their CEOs are very revealing. They're telling their stockholders, we have never had a better moment than this. As like, When conflicts continue to escalate as happening now in Ukraine, you are going to be seeing such good re rewards for your investments in our company. They're very aware of this. And uh, since they have, the arms companies have, especially the four or five major ones, have contributed so much money to political uh, candidates who are now sitting in Congress. And since they have so many lobbyists on, Beacon, on, on uh, Capitol Hill, more than one lobbyist for every member of Congress, and since they have given economic incentives to these various members of Congress to keep projects going and to order more weapons all the time in order to increase employment, uh, there's an economic benefit too. The, the congressmen see this as a way that they can uh, uh, rake in campaign contributions and at the same time make themselves feel uh, morally good by defending uh, a defenseless people against uh, a heinous dictator who's invading. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the arguments that a lot of people latch onto is that Ukraine is a sovereign country and why should we not support them in defending themselves mm -hmm. against this heinous dictator? Um, but it seems more complicated than that. It's not just about the fact that we should support Ukraine's ambitions to become a, a NATO member. And in doing so, we really disadvantage. We, I don't think we're serving them very much. Um, as long as we continue to move down this path, more and more lives are being lost, and Russia's not necessarily going anywhere. I ask a people who are following this war two questions. Uh, number one, what's so bad about a neutral Ukraine? And number two, how would we react to a Russian or Chinese military base in Tijuana or in Quebec? Would we say, oh, it doesn't really matter. The Russians have put nuclear weapons in large numbers of troops in Mexico. But after all, Mexico is a sovereign country. So there's nothing we can do. We wouldn't say that. And we would be crazy to say that. You can't just sit back and wait for a threat like that. And that's exactly the position that Putin's in. So ask yourself those two questions. Uh, what's so bad about a neutral Ukraine? And how would we feel about enemy bases in Mexico or Canada? Yeah. 
I mean, if Ukraine were located somewhere else in the world, then this is a different conversation. The reality is that it sits right on the border of Russia, and there's nothing that we can do about that. Um, it's just the, <laughs> the geography of it makes it a completely different context. You know, uh, being a smaller country living right next to a giant power is difficult. It always requires you to be careful to limit your uh, foreign policy. Now, in Europe, countries have learned this lesson over many centuries because there's so many countries packed in so closely together. So before Italy makes a move, it has to think, so what are the Austrians going to think? And what about Hungary? And how are the French going to react? And when the Germans react, what are we going to do? You've got a lot of pieces. And European statesmen are, uh, it's not for, it's not an accident that European statesmen developed the balance of power concept because that, though, that continent is so closely packed with competing interests. The United States has never had experience like that. We don't have to get along with lots of neighbors. We're not used to compromising. All we have is stolid Canadians and happy Mexicans and rapidly depleting fish stocks. We don't have to uh, worry about sovereignty. Now, think about it if you're Honduras. How, how independent a foreign policy has Honduras been able to steer over the last hundred years? Not so independent. They can do what they want as long as they don't anger the United States. That's always been the reality. Of course, Honduras is a sovereign country and it can uh, it can give a big middle finger to the United States. Not really. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not, it's sovereign, but it's a small country living next to a giant power. And that giant power naturally has interests and it has fears and it has power, has ability to impose itself. So sovereignty is a wonderful concept that I love. But the reality of life, it doesn't have to do just with Russia, is that small countries living right next to big powers have to shape their foreign policy in ways that protect them from uh, reprisals uh, or uh, danger from that big power. Mm -hmm. There's an even bigger context happening in the world right now, which is the, of course, threat of China uh, invading Taiwan. And with that backdrop, um, I wonder if it's possible that at least part of the motivation here in Russia and Ukraine is simply to prove a point and to flex our muscles. And if that's the case, it, it makes me nauseous to think about how many people are suffering and dying just to prove a point. But do you think that this is part of the equation here? And um, if that's the case, what, what would you say to, to people um, in power? First of all, I think it definitely is the case. I, I've heard members of Congress explicitly say that. We, we're showing China that we're, we have resolve. Mm -hmm. So if you're the mother of a dead Ukrainian, all you can say to her is, don't worry, it's not so bad because we taught a lesson to the Chinese, don't you think? Mm -hmm. So that, essentially, that's the trade-off. Now, the situations are so different. Um, Taiwan, of course, is a former province of China. And it's always considered and recognized by the United States and most of the world is part of China. Um, and the United States has seized on this possibility in, in actually in a way not so dissimilar from the way we've uh, seized on Ukraine. So we see Ukraine mainly as a uh, way to, as a spear to, to plunge into the heart of Russia. And we see Taiwan as a spear that we can use to damage China. Uh, 
First of all, anti-China rhetoric is at an all-time high now. It's really actually kind of frightening to see the unanimity about it. There are even, even those Republicans that do not want to continue sending money to Ukraine for the Ukraine war often say, we need to focus on arming Taiwan. So uh, I would love to see us ratchet tensions down in Taiwan. I don't think any military action uh, is imminent, but uh, there are elements in Taiwan that are interested in reducing tensions and having contacts with Ty with uh, the government in Beijing. Right uh, this week, as we're speaking, the president of Taiwan, who's militantly uh, anti-Beijing, is in Washington and being feted by uh, all kinds of members of Congress. They, they love her. Uh, however, her predecessor, at the same time, we don't get too much about this in our American press, is in Beijing. And he's trying to promote an alternative to confrontation. Weren't there ways that we could figure out how we could get closer together and reduce tensions? But again, just like in Ukraine, reducing tensions is not what the United States wants. We have a chance here, we think, to wound China. So uh, it reflects a real um, underlying presumption of our approach to China. And it's this, the way to defend ourselves in the future against whatever China is going to be able to do is to try to block and stop and undermine China at every step. We, we want to try to halt China's growth and, and block its pathway to all kinds of prosperity and power. To me, this is the wrong approach. It, first of all, it's not going to work because China is too big a country for the United States to push around that way. But secondly, uh, such a policy is predicated on the idea that there's nothing we can do at home to improve our position against China. In fact, that should be our focus. What can we do in the United States to make ourselves better competitors against China? Can we educate more people? Can we provide a better society that's a better example to the rest of the world? Why not, instead of focusing on ways to stop China's rise, try to focus on ways to promote our own rise? There's so little attention to that in Washington in comparison to uh, the excitement that comes every time there seems to be some way to wound one of our perceived enemies. Mm -hmm. I know the president of Taiwan was in California recently meeting with Kevin McCarthy, and uh, I'm still upset that I'm not sure why I didn't get invited to that uh, that lunch. <laughs> um, why? Just why does why is this the, the position of the U.S.? I, th I think we fail to understand that our aggression and that sort of outward facing um, approach versus focusing on our own inner development. Um, that is interrogates and provokes other countries. And of course, they're going to want to respond. So then we have this paranoia that other countries then are have these similar ambitions or are going to attack us. And it creates this back and forth. And as you're alluding to, I mean, why can't we lead in a different way? Why can't we strengthen, I guess, from the inside out and show leadership and 
confidence and that capacity. I, it just seems very, very paranoid and also does not appreciate how relationships work. Like if you antagonize someone else, they're going to antagonize you back. And then we act like, oh my God, why are they, why are other people coming after us? The back and forth that you just described has actually a name in uh, the international relations business. It's called the security dilemma. If every uh, beginning student in, in, in IR uh, learns that learns about that. So what is the security dilemma? A country arms itself in order to defend itself against a perceived threat. But that arming is taken as threatening by another country. And that country then arms itself. And that spirals up into confrontation. So it's very true that um, the United States is shocked when countries come back at us. Uh, but I think uh, there are a couple of points to, to make here. Uh, the United States is used to being the dominant power in the world. It's been for generations that we've been that way. It's very difficult for many people in Washington to imagine a world that the United States does not dominate. It's just not something that we have in our psychology or in our history. Uh, we're used to telling people what to do, and we've had the power to do it. That's why the United States is not really interested in compromise. In the past, we never had to compromise. <laughs> we were so strong that we could get what we wanted. Now the world is changing. And to me, this is the great dilemma, the great question of the coming decades. The balance of power in the world is changing. In the United States, in that change, is at least in a relative sense going to lose power. We're, we're heading towards a more multipolar world. Now, that's inevitable. The rise of China and uh, the rise of smaller countries that are smaller are secondary powers that are now allied in groups like the BRICS countries of Brazil and Russia and India, China, South Africa, a number of others are now joining. These blocks are emerging. It was inevitable that this would happen after the end of the Cold War. So. The question is, will the United States accept a multipolar world? Or are we going to resist it violently and lash out in war after war to be sure that a multipolar world does not emerge? Maybe we're seeing some symptoms of what that kind of lashing out will do uh, in Ukraine now and, and in the saber rattling over Taiwan. So. To me, this is our, our great geopolitical question. Are, are we going to accept a new reality in the world or being so accustomed to shaping reality, are we gonna insist on continuing to do that despite increasing resistance and the desire of the rest of the world for a multipolar system? Mm -hmm. It really does seem like that is the, the thing that we're holding on to here. Um, is and of course everything changes always and you know empires rise and fall um so yes i i agree maybe there, there's probably a maybe a better future for us accepting a multipolar world versus potentially creating something that could be self-destructive by um trying to be the dominant force and then getting you know taken over and i think uh the one of the advantages of the multipolar world is not only that it's more manageable, but maybe it allows countries to focus a little more 
on their own societies. In recent years, there's been a wonderful eruption of social justice movements in the United States. And they're pushing for things like uh, universal health care and uh, free community college and Medicare for all. So I'm all for that. Uh, oftentimes, those proposals are laughed out of the room with the phrase, how are we going to pay for that? Well, yeah, there is a way to pay for it. I got a trillion dollars almost in the defense budget. We have 800 military bases around the world. There's a lot of money out there. But you don't hear uh, the leaders of those social justice movements, including their representatives in Congress, making that connection. There is the potential in this country to provide everything uh, that these progressives are pushing for. Universal education, universal health care. These are the kind of things that other rich countries provide as a matter of course. We have the resources to do that, but we're pouring them into a competition, uh, heavily armed and bloody competition, that is not only unsettling the world, but is draining the resources out of what we could be doing in the United States. In the future, as is normal when there are competing big powers, people in other countries are gonna look at those countries' societies and ask how successful are they? In many ways, the Chinese society is looking more successful than ours. China has pulled more people out of poverty than any country in the history of the world. Um, China has uh, levels of education that we only dream of. Uh, and we need to make a connection that if we are going to shine, if we're going to succeed and prosper in the decades ahead, we have to catch up to other countries in our focus on the United States. We have upheaval. We have political polarization. We have uh, uh, gun massacres all the time. Uh, we're not looking like a society that's a model. And I'll tell you, much more than military power is this power of hearts and minds. When you create a society that makes other countries, people in other countries think, wow, they succeeded. I'd like to be like them. You draw people to you. It's, it's a magnetic appeal. The United States actually has benefited tremendously from that over more than a century. You know, regardless of all our sins in the world, it's really extraordinary to see how many people admire the United States, how many people have come to the United States to live, how many people want to come to the United States. Uh, so we have a great story to tell, but it we're really besmirching it. You know, in, in last couple of decades, particularly as after the end of the Cold War, when we thought we were going to be the dominant power in the world, our society has become terribly unraveled. And that's something that is really a, what I would call a national security issue too. If your population is not educated enough to compete with the kids from Estonia and Namibia, then uh, that's national security problem. We, ha we have to educate our people in ways that we're not. We have to provide for our own people. Uh, and the constant emphasis on arming ourselves and our military budget being now approaching a trillion dollars is something that's not duplicated by any other country. Uh, so history tells us that societies tend to dissolve when they don't pay attention to their own people. And you know, democracy is, is a very unusual way to run a country. It's not, there were, probably was never a political philosopher in all of history 
who would have suggested a society where every person gets an equal vote. Our founding fathers would be horrified at this idea. It's very difficult to maintain a system like this. It requires constant vigilance hmm. to keep it going. And, and I think we're assuming too much that our society is going to keep going the way it is forever. It's not going to be any problem. The Constitution will always be respected. The institutions of government will be independent and forceful. But that's not necessarily true. You have to work for that. And when we focus all of our attention on punishing foreign enemies, we lose our focus at home. Hmm. I really love this idea of appealing to other people's hearts and minds and being a role model in a sense. And I wonder if that is the way that we can lead. Maybe that's the new definition of leadership in the future. And we can role model um, <laughs> not being so imperialistic and not being so antagonizing towards other people. And I wonder if other countries would follow suit if we sort of drop this paranoid mindset and we actually just project a sense of like confidence in just developing our own country and not worrying about other people, maybe other people will follow suit. I almost wonder if, you know, I mean, there's just a domino effect to this and maybe that's the new paradigm of leadership in the future um, is, is, is kind of leading in that way. I have a friend, a U.S. diplomat, who used to be the cultural attache at the uh, U.S. Embassy in Pakistan. And uh, we had a library, a U.S. Uh, library in uh, Lahore, one of the big cities, and there's a U.S. consulate there. And uh, she had the idea that uh, she'd like to bring some paintings from the United States to put on display and people could come and see them in the U.S. library. So she wrote back to the State Department, can we say, is there a way to get paintings from American painters over here? And they wrote back, no, but we have posters that depict uh, famous American paintings. And she said, okay, send me over the posters. It's not the same thing, but anyway, it's something. So uh, she said, I, we, we hung up the posters one weekend in the library. And we put a note in the newspaper that said, starting on Monday, there's some posters of American art hanging up. So we got to work on Monday. There were lines around the block to come in and look at posters of American art. Now, that library is now closed. We don't do that anymore. Our embassy in Pakistan functions behind very high walls. We don't have little libraries where people would come and read American books and American magazines and I've, I've seen, I've heard so many stories of people born in foreign countries who come to the United States. And they say, I went to the America house when I was a kid. I saw Western movies. I started reading, look at the pictures in magazines. I always wanted to come to America. You develop a very positive image, but we don't project that anymore. America really has a great story to tell, but we don't tell it. I think we're too eager to project our message at, at, the, at the end of a gun uh, and not eager enough to show another side of American life. You use the phrase self-confidence. It's true. The United States should project self-confidence, but you can only project self-confidence if you're self-confident. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure Americans are anymore. I feel like maybe Chinese probably much more self-confident th than we are. And I think people in the rest of the world see that. And uh, that definitely increases the appeal of, if not partnership with China, at least breaking away from too intimate a partnership with the United States, which seems to be a very troubled and unsuccessful society at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's more like a um, a false sense of confidence that maybe we're projecting or an in, in, in insecurity 
um, type of uh, false confidence. Um, you mentioned a minute ago, like kind of, you know, some social justice stuff too. And, and um, you know, I mean, all of this gets so, the politics of all of this gets so confusing between left and right, but like, it's, it, where are the people that are advocating for the voices that are advocating for peace? That used to be a social justice issue. It used to be very left. And now everything seems to be getting jumbled up and there's people across the political spectrum, maybe on the right, who are advocating to be ending these wars abroad. And now it's the Democrats, as you mentioned, who unanimously are voting for these spending packages. And I guess I'm just thinking about, you know, I really just wish that that was, we could also project um, our sense of confidence and leadership in that way. Can we advocate for for peace can we you know may can we recognize uh the sovereignty and the and the autonomy of other countries and recognize our common humanity with other people why is that like a taboo thing that seems to me like it should be a very progressive thing but it's almost very taboo to suggest that like oh people in in russia are not necessarily all evil there's good human beings there and it's not just black and white i mean very frustrating. Well, Americans, Americans love a demon. You know, it's nice to be against a movement or, or a general political condition, but that's not really satisfying. You got to have a demon. I mean, we loved Gaddafi and uh, Castro and Khomeini, Saddam, and, and so Putin really fits the uh, stereotype. We, we love to have somebody onto whom we can project absolute evil. And that makes us feel so good because we're on the other side. Uh, now, you're talking about the left-right split. I think when in dealing with issues of uh, foreign policy, that, far, that uh, distinction isn't really very useful. In a sense, it's liberal internationalism. It's ut liberal utopianism that tells us the world is always going to get better and there's not going to be any war more warlords and we're going to create a perfect society. Everybody will love America because hmm. we're so good. And if there are countries that are against us, there can only be two reasons. Number one is that the people in those countries don't know us or the leaders of those countries don't understand how good we are. And the other reason is that they're evil people. So naturally they wouldn't like good people like us. Countries always feel this way. You know, people are the same way. I'm, you don't know me, but I'm a really wonderful guy. And if, if you don't like me, it can either be because you don't, you don't know how good I am or because you're a jerk and you wouldn't like a nice person like me. The idea that you, you know exactly who I am and you've watched what I do all my whole life and you really don't like me, this is not possible. And I think nations feel the same way. Uh, now, it's so it's the liberal utopian idea that tells you it's just a, in countries that are where, where we don't dominate and that resist our power, it must be because there's just a few evil leaders there's a, an elite that is tamping down the natural pro-American sentiment of all peoples. So what we have to do is go in and get rid of those people, peel back that layer of evil, and then the natural friendship of most people for the United States will flower. The idea that there are a lot of people in a lot of countries in the world that have watched the United States closely over many years and really do not like what we do and they are patriotic nationalists in their own country, it's very difficult for us to accept. 
the idea of a restrained foreign policy in which you don't go off onto crusades and try to save oppressed peoples around the world is an essentially conservative idea. Now, for a long time, the right wing, the so-called neoconservatives in Washington have been among the great promoters of war. But in the past, um, there has been a strong element within the Republican Party uh, that advocated for what I would consider a real conservative foreign policy. Um, John Quincy Adams put it very beautifully. Uh, he said, the United States does not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Well, now we do. And it would be great to get the United States back on this more conservative path. But I can see why in Washington, this the idea of utopianism, which is really a fundamentally liberal idea. We're going to go out. Everybody wants to be like us. We're going to make them like America. And that's why so many people are unhappy in the world, because they can't be like Americans, which is the only good thing to be in the world. Uh, we have a, a mission in the world. We're a special country that has to go out and project our values and show people that their systems are not as good as our system. Uh, other big powers don't behave this way. And that is, and conservatism is the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. Conservatism tells you there isn't really that much we can or should do about things far away. We should concentrate on our own defense. We should only get involved abroad when our vital interests are at stake. And uh, we should concentrate at home. Now, it's interesting. Uh, the conservatives, actually have a more, um, I would say, coherent policy when it comes to foreign and domestic policies. Uh, a true conservative would be against progressive measures, totally against uh, Medicare for all or free college education. They're against uh, school lunches that are paid, no social programs at home. But they also believe we shouldn't be trying to change society anywhere else either. So at least there's a consistency there. The progressives in America want to change society uh, in other countries. Mm -hmm. They are focused abroad. They're always thinking about some poor oppressed group over there that's just dying for the United States to intervene. The fact is that when the United States intervenes in conflicts abroad or creates conflicts abroad because we're trying to prevent human rights violations, we usually wind up creating more human rights violations than what we came in to solve. Mm -hmm. Libya fantastic example. We heard that Gaddafi was going to go in and start uh, shooting people in one of the provincial cities, and we couldn't accept this. So we bombed the country. He, he, we might have saved hundreds of lives. Who knows? But now the country is in complete chaos. It is a, a nest of terrorism. It's mired in factional war. There are slave markets there. It went from being the most prosperous country in Africa to a completely failed state that is at uh, exporting weaponry and terrorism around Africa. So where's the human rights uh, success in that? For me, uh, the uh, goalpost for uh, uh, foreign intervention should be very high. We should only intervene in countries where a when we have a vital interest, uh, when there's a clear exit strategy, uh, when the American people support this intervention. Uh, we don't have those uh, situations now. Our vital interests are not at stake in Ukraine. 
And we want to, in America, really overdefine our vital interests. You don't want to have too many vital interests because those are the ones you want to go to war for. We do not have a vital interest in where the border of Ukraine is drawn. We do not have a vital interest in which parties become members of the government of Syria and which parties are not allowed into the government of Syria. We should allow other countries to take more of the burden for themselves. Hmm. Stephen, this has been jam-packed with all sorts of wonderful uh, perspectives and wisdom and everything. Is there anything else that we haven't covered today that you wanted to add? I just want to point out to people that uh, the United States is now a, a uniquely interventionist power. It's sapping our ability to address our own problems, and we're, we're fomenting more trouble in the world. Uh, I think uh, uh, members of Congress feel that essentially they're free to do whatever they want in foreign policy. If, they, if that's the bidding of the arms industry, uh, great, because voters don't care. That's what they tell themselves. Voters vote on other issues. Very few people vote on the basis of how I supported one foreign policy or another. So members of Congress feel completely free to do what they want on these issues. I'd like to see voters step up and try to tell their members of Congress, if this is what they believe, that uh, the United States should not always focus, only focus on conflicts in the world, but we should ask ourselves a question that our political elite rarely does, which is, what can we do to promote peace in the world and reduce levels of conflict rather than intensify them? Amen. I think that's the question to continually come back to. Are we adding to human suffering or are we taking away? And if we ask that question right now, I think there's a very clear answer to that as far as how our behaviors are contributing to that outcome. Let's hope the press makes that clear. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, your uh, role in the press and, and, and the perspectives and all the work and writing that you do. Uh, and it's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you, Stephen. Okay. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Middle Way. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, share, all that good stuff. And I'll see you back here soon.